We'll uh, get started. Um, seems like everybody's really excited about this topic specifically today. Everybody sat down and was ready to go. I know everybody wants to hear about some contentment. I know we've all got it figured out, but um, uh, I think uh, the the writers of the two books that I looked looked at this week would uh, beg to differ. Um, before we get started, um, let me just pray with us real quick. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this time to come and study um, about contentment, about how we fall so short um, in our contentment with our lives, with the circumstances of them. Lord, we pray that um, as we go through this this topic today, that you would just enlighten um, maybe some of the blind spots that we have in our own life. Lord, um, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just soften our hearts and open um, the eyes of our hearts to see what it is that you want to teach us today. Uh, Lord, be with with me as I uh, try to go through this book. Lord, just uh, guard my words and uh, protect what you want to be said today um, to, to come out fully and um, that it would that it would ultimately glor- ultimately glorify you um, in this this conversation and talk today um, Lord we we love you and we thank you and it's in your son's name we pray amen okay so I get the beginning of if you guys have have your books you can kind of look at them I get kind of the first one of the new section, there was uh, section one was was entitled "Radical and Restless," and this new one is "Ordinary and Content." So um, I guess it's only fitting that he starts this section with contentment. Um, up to this point, Horton's, Horton has been fleshing out uh, the problem of today, radical and restless. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, at all, but it's becoming more and more apparent all the time. Um, I'm going to do a kind of do a brief recap of a few of the quotes from previous chapters that I think he used to kind of lead us to this section um, that we're going through today. Um, so I, I think this is kind of, I haven't read through the rest of the book, but I think this is kind of his pivot point of where he's uh, going with the rest of the book. So um, just a few quotes from other chapters. Um, Changing the world can be a way of actually avoiding the opportunities we have every day right where God has placed us to glorify and enjoy him and to enrich the lives of others. Um, That was off of uh, of the first chapter. Um, There's a difference between an idol of comfort and genuine biblical contentment. Being content with life means accepting the circumstances in which God's provision or providence has placed me. Another one, it is only by discovering a worthy object of desire that we find ourselves interested in pursuing it. Um, he quotes First uh, Corinthians 10.31, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Um, another one, we don't find happiness by trying to be happy. If we make happiness our life's quest, Intentionally or unintentionally, we are making happiness an idol. When our striving fails, we become more unhappy. 
another one, narcissism frequently leads to self-loathing. They're doing, they're doing anything to distract themselves from the fact that they feel empty inside and unworthy. We constantly feel we need to make God more palatable or rebrand Christ every couple of years. We don't want to know what is true about God. We want to know how he can help us in this quest. Does focusing on revival contribute to our dissatisfaction with God's ordinary blessings on his ordinary means? So those are just a few. I'm sure if you um, have read the the first half-ish of this book, um, there's probably other ones that I didn't draw out, but um, there was a lot kind of pointing to this section that we're in now. Um, What I do know is... Being a millennial, I hate that word. I hate being in that group of quote-unquote millennials for a lot of reasons, um, mainly because I don't feel like I identify with a lot of the things that they say and do. But um, I am still a part of that generation, and and I would say that we're becoming, if if we aren't already, the most discontent generation of people to ever live. Now, I don't know about younger than that generation, what they're even called, or, or if they're less content than even we are, but at this point, I, I know where I am and the, the people that I'm close to are in that same generation, and discontent is running rampant in this country, in other countries, in our local, um, in, in Amarillo, and I would say that there's even people in this congregation that are discontent. Um, for a while now, I've been wondering why that is, and I've been richly blessed by the study and prep for this lesson. Um, what I do know is that contentment is not just an issue for non-believers. Um, like I said, um, this is a this is a major issue in the church as well. I believe the problem ultimately stems from the lack of belief and understanding of the first Westminster Catechism question and answer: What is the chief end of man? Or why are we created? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We'll flesh this out more as we go, but I think that is uh, foundational in a life that is characterized by true Christian contentment that looks like Philippians 4.11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I want to walk through some of the ideas Horton goes after in the chapter, and then I have a few more ideas from another book that I think Um, are important to the idea, um, this idea of contentment. Horton sets up this uh, chapter by talking about the source and object of our contentment. He says contentment is is not something we can just generate from within. It has to have an object. There must be someone or something that is so satisfying that we can sing Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. I have always assumed this to be more difficult for young people, uh, younger people than than those who've lived a long life. Um, But I'm sure that's not really the case. It's just my perception of um, the older generation. Um, So how do we cultivate let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also? How do we cultivate that in our life? It must start with the focus on God being both the source and the object of our contentment. 
He also states in this section, the gospel keeps our eyes fixed on Christ while the law tells us how to run the race. Horton believes so many of our problems result from a basic discontent with God's word. We must be content with his ordinary means of grace that over time yield a harvest of plenty for everyone to enjoy. Both of those uh, quotes will be explained a little bit more as we go. Um, The next idea Horton navigates is of sustainability. He starts with, we should all be in favor of growth, both in numbers and quality, in our personal lives and as a church, where disagreements emerge is over what growth means and how to sustain it. Have any of you ever felt like you needed to do something more to grow spiritually? As in, impatience with the ordinary is at the root of our restlessness. We're looking for something more to charge our lives with meaning and purpose. Instead of growing like a tree, we want to grow like a forest fire. We are not looking for sustainable growth over the long term, but instead we want God to make us completely holy now without all the mundane hard stuff. So from there, he kind of jumps into this idea of avarice. And, and then he doesn't exactly go, um, go at that the difference between that and greed, but I kind of wanted to look up what's the difference between the two. I kind of use the word interchangeably. So um, avarice typically refers to lust for wealth, while greed can be for more than just money and is more closely tied to overconsumption or wanting more than you need. Um, do we see avarice becoming, becoming a virtue in our country, in our city, in our church? Individuals in affluent cultures are not, on average, happier than, the, than others. Um, he quotes a statistic that the U.S., U.S. incomes have doubled since 1957, yet the number of adults saying they are very ha- quote-unquote very happy has declined from 35% to 29%. To me, this is a disheartening number. And Tim Kaser, a psychology professor, states, consumer culture breeds a narcissistic personality by focusing individuals on the glorification of consumption. As Dennis touched on a couple of weeks ago, as ambition has moved from being a vice to a virtue, contentment has been transformed from a virtue into a vice. Contentment has become to mean the lack of ambition, that the only way you can be content is if you lack ambition. And I think that that's really sad that that's the place that we're in now. Um, We're called to grow from a place of contentment or rest and not toward it. This requires a lifetime of divine therapy, having our minds and hearts transformed by God's word Um, The next idea uh, Horton kind of goes after is the difference between a contractual way of thinking and a covenantal way of thinking. In a contractual standpoint, we begin to treat our relationships as if we are both sovereign individuals, free to choose whatever we want, and we both surrender some of our freedom in exchange for certain benefits. And as long as that works out, great. If at some point a person fails to keep their part of the bargain, The other person can just get out of the contract. But we're called, and he's kind of calling us to, we must begin to see everything from a covenantal standpoint. 
with the main difference being that God is sovereign, the sovereign creator and Lord. We don't own ourselves, but we are God's image bearers, accountable to him, not only for how we relate to him, but also how we relate to others. We never start from a position of autonomy, electing to give up some of our sovereignty to God in exchange for certain benefits. In marriage, I must yield my whole self to the other person, regardless of circumstances, till death do us part. I don't know about you, but, I mean, I'm pretty much killing it in that. I mean, just ask my wife. I mean, I'm, just, just ask her. She'll tell you. Um, I, I love this picture that he, that he gives um, in this section on page 130. If you've got your books, you can, you can turn to it, follow, follow with me. It's not a long section, but I just want to read from it directly. Um, this is a great picture of the difference in a covenantal and contractual relationship. Um, he says, in a covenantal paradigm, I'm bound intrinsically to God and to others in ways that transcend any good or service I can calculate. A total stranger rushes to a pond to pull out a young skater from an icy waters without running a cost-benefit analysis. The rescuer is not fulfilling a contractual obligation, but the command of God in his or her conscience that obligates a stranger con- to consider the endangered child a neighbor. So I thought that was just a really, really good picture of exactly what he's trying to hit out here. He uses marriage a lot at, at the beginning of it. I know not everybody in here is married, and I hate to kind of overuse that. So I really love that he had another kind of good example to go um, along with that. Um, he speaks on the fact that we are either driven by intrinsic values or internal desires, or we're driven by extrinsic values extrinsic values which are expectations that we don't personally embrace but we must at least pretend to exhibit to win approval and he says that some would call this um, contingent self-esteem our self-esteem is always contingent upon someone else outside of ourselves Uh, we crave approval but we don't even know what the real measure is even though we have some sense that we've fallen short of it um When was the last time you asked yourself, am I measuring up to God's holy law? Instead, we ask, what will my friends think of me? What will my boss think of me? What will my spouse think of me? Those are two very distinctly different questions. Um, When contractual thinking dominates our horizon of meaning, we can even make Jesus, the church, or our own spirituality, an asset we think we can manage. I love this quote that he has in here. kind of made me laugh when I first read it. Um, We even talk about making Jesus my personal Lord and Savior, as if we could make him anything. This assumes that we start off as autonomous individuals who own ourselves in the first place. Then, if we choose, we can cede some of our sovereignty to Jesus in exchange for whatever we think he can give us in return. The good news is Jesus is the only Lord and Savior, and it's not what I make him, but what he has made me, a son of the Father Almighty, a co-heir of his estate. Jesus is the covenant servant who fulfilled all obedience that we owed, yet as God, he is also the covenant Lord 
He is the Lord who commands and the human servant of the covenant who obeys. If we truly believe this fact, then I no longer have any reason to, te- to treat others as tools of my self-esteem or self-validation. I can rest in the fact that I am who I am, not because of my choice, but because God chose me. I must see my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ not as instruments of my ambition, but as gifts, co-heirs of the inheritance that we all share together in Christ. In the covenant of grace, God says to us, I am with you to the end, come what may. Only from this position of security can we say the same to our spouse, our children, and our fellow believers. And from this deepest contentment, we can fulfill our covenants in the world as unto the Lord, even when others break their contracts. The next point he leads us into is how we are to be content with our Heavenly Father. We become content with Him as we grow in our understanding of who He is and what He's done. We never have to question whether He is disposed toward our good. We begin to rest in Him and confide in Him during life's storms. When we know that He has chosen us, redeemed us, justified us, and adopted us, and that he is sanctifying us by his spirit until we are one day glorified in Christ at his return. He doesn't just command us to be content, but he gives us reason to be content. The king has walked along the king has walked alone and unarmed into the night to be willingly handed over to Satan, death, and hell in order to disarm the powers of darkness. Alone, he faced the wrath of justice, spilling out his own blood, not for loyal subjects, but for enemies, winning their redemption and release by his glorious resurrection. He then goes after being content with Christ and his kingdom. Each person in the church is not a tool in, in the will to power, but as a gift in the circulation of loving and serving relationships. It's not simply a natural covenant of human interdependence, but a covenant of grace. We were given as we were where we forgive. Oh, we were forgiven um, has first where we forgive as God has first forgiven us. Excuse me. Um, I'm going to read part of first. Timothy 6, starting in verse 6, um, it's a section that he, he writes out the whole thing in the book, so I'm just going to read it directly from the, this text. But that's uh, 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. 
Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And continuing on a little bit further in this passage, he says, We are being instructed not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but instead set our hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. The gifts I have are not for my private use, but for me to pass along to others. I think this is key in how we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, The weaknesses I have are more important because they make me more dependent on others. Um, This section is key to understanding how we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, and God does not bless us so that we can hoard those blessings for ourselves alone. We are to horizontally pass on those blessings we have been given vertically. How much sweeter does this make the relationships we have with those around us? This helps us to be content in the place God has called us, in Amarillo, at my job, in this local body, etc. This cuts off the ambition to change our station in life. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who, th- who strengthens me. Horton argues that this is easier for those who leave the comforts of their home to serve the disadvantaged in Africa than it is for those who live near them all. I think that that's a pretty large blanket statement he's making. I don't know that I necessarily completely agree with him, but um, it's, it's still something that he, um, he put in here and feels is, is the case. Um, and I can see his argument for it. Um, he follows that with, if God gives you temporal wealth and, and position, use it for his glory and your neighbor's good. I would add, not for your own personal enjoyment, um, to the end of that statement. But um, It's for this answer that Paul says, I have received full payment and more, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in his glory in Jesus Christ. That's from Philippians 4. The next point he goes after is the idea that being content with God's ordinary means of work in creation and providence. God works through ordinary means every day in so many ways that we don't even notice his involvement and our complete dependence on him in each and every moment. How many of us think that God's greatest signs and wonders are being done every week through the ordinary means of preaching, baptism, and the Lord's Supper? If we associate God's activity exclusively with things that we can see and quantify, then we can fall unwittingly into the naturalist habit of missing God's activity through normal people and things that he made. Not for one moment could the cosmos sustain itself apart from the Father's loving word, which he speaks in his Son and by his Spirit. In everything that the Trinity does, the Father is the source, the Son is the mediator, and the Spirit is the one who is at work within creation to bring the project to completion. Once we recover a greater sense of God's ordinary vocation 
as the site of his faithfulness, we will begin to appreciate our own calling to love and to serve others in his name in every way that makes a real difference in people's, in people's lives. We have lost our joy in God's providential care, working through normal processes and layers of mediation that he himself has created and maintains by his word and spirit. Once we recover a greater sense of this vocation, we will begin to appreciate our calling to serve one another um, in this way. The last point he is making is that we should be content with his ordinary ways of working in redemption. Christ's person and work depended on the um, descent of another witness from heaven, the Holy Spirit. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is a normal process. It might, it might not be a bad idea that we learn the faith through a catechism week after week or that we follow a liturgy that makes the word of Christ dwell in us richly. But that just becomes so, so routine, doesn't it? I mean, come on. Don't we just need something to break up? with you know some powerful event or some impressive staging or something new to keep it from being so mundane absolutely not scripture repeatedly urges us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ by regular instruction in the patterns the pattern of sound words uh, that's from 2 Timothy 1:13 what about baptism we think of it as our work testifying to our faith and promise to follow the lord rather than God's testimony and promise um, of making to us that and, and promise making to us that delivers Christ with all of his benefits. Colossians 2:12 says, having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. God's promise comes first, and then faith embraces it. He is trying to warn against searching for and expecting miracles and instead being content in the ordinary means of grace in our lives. He says, we do have God's promise that he will perform the greatest signs and wonders through the preaching of his word and the administration of his sacraments. It is only because God has promised to meet us in the humble and ordinary places to deliver his inheritance that we are content to receive him in these ways. He, he says that uh, CNN, CNN will not be showing up at a church that is simply trusting God to do ex- extraordinary things through ordinary means of grace delivered by ordinary servants, but God will, week after week. Throughout John 15, Jesus also issues imperatives to bear fruit that witness to the life-giving vine and to our own sharing in Christ. Christ, our own Yet our decisions, choices, and actions are grounded in his. Now we are free to choose the one who has chosen us, free to bind ourselves to a local expression of his chosen people, simply because it is the family he is creating by his spirit through the word and sacraments. On the last page of this chapter, Horton says, True contentment, therefore, comes first from resting in Christ. The, wor- the world's op- options are just too limiting. There is nothing on the menu for being chosen by God, redeemed and reconciled to the Father and His Son, 
the forgiveness of sins and justification of the wicked, being crucified and raised with Christ as part of his new creation, belonging to God's new family, and the resurrection of the body unto life everlasting. Martin Luther puts it well, I have held many things in my hands and have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Contentment is the virtue that contrasts with restlessness, ambition, and avarice. It means realizing once again that we are not our own, as pastors, parents, children, spouses, friends, employees, employers, it is the Lord's to give and to take away. He is building his church and it is his ministry that is saving and building up his body. Even our common callings in the, wor- in the world are not really our, our own, but they are God's work of supplying others, including ourselves, with what the whole society needs. There is a lot of work to be done, but it is his work that, is, that he is doing through us in a daily and most ordinary ways. So with uh, the rest of the time that we have, I'm going to kind of go through um, another, some, some ideas from another book that I looked at this week um, talking about this subject of contentment. Um, so I grabbed this book. Um, this is... The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment um, by Jeremiah Burroughs. And I, I don't even know. I think I was buying the uh, Valley of Visions on Amazon, and this just popped up as a book like, a, hey, if you like this one, maybe you'd like this one too. And immediately I was kind of caught off guard by the title of it, just The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And it's kind of the way that I've been feeling for, for a while now that, you know, that you don't hear about contentment. You don't hear about even Christian contentment. Um, it's not something that's readily talked about. It's more, um, it's kind of taboo because that, that means that I'm not getting everything that I want out of my own life. Um, so immediately I just, I'm, I'm buying this one as well for sure um, whenever I get around to reading it. And then um, as as I was uh, looking at this, looking at the chapters, it was like, well, maybe this is my time to go through that book as well. Um, so I only made it through the first chapter of this book, but I think what he kind of lays out in the first chapter is pretty foundational for um, the rest of the argument that he makes throughout the whole book. Um, but I would say if you're looking for another resource on contentment, it's not huge, and it's not like some of the other um, people of that uh, era that are diff- very difficult to read. Um, this one's pretty easy read, um, so I would definitely recommend it to you um, in your study of this further. But um, sorry, I kind of lost my place now. Um, he says in this book. I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. Though I I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, I have a yet I have sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. He even makes the claim that uh, to be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. Um, he also uses the First Timothy 
uh, 6 section as Horton does to further this point. Um, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. There is the glory and excellence of it as if to suggest that godliness were not gained without contentment. Here is Burroughs' description of contentment. I'll try to read this slow and not mess this up. But Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So this first chapter he goes through and fleshes out. There's, there's nine aspects in that definition that he, he kind of um, draws out more. Um, I, I didn't put all of them in, in my notes here, but um, it's, he does a really good job of, of laying out each one of those little statements, whether it be um, just, um, sorry, I just lost my place again, um, whether he's talking about that sweet inward um, or the quiet or gracious frame of spirit. Each one of those, he kind of, um, kind of breaks those down. Um, so he, uh, he, one of the quotes from this uh, section is, Many may sit silently, refraining from discontented expression, yet inwardly they are bursting with discontent. I'm guilty of this for sure. Um, he says, A quiet spirit is opposed to an, an unsettled and unstable spirit whereby the heart is distracted from the present duty that God requires in our s- several relationships toward him, others, and ourselves. He says, contentment is a grace that spreads itself through, the whole, through our whole soul. He elaborates by saying, this is the hand of God, and what is sustained to my condition or, f- or best for me, although I do not see the reason for the thing, Yet I am satisfied in my judgment about it. As my judgment is satisfied, so my thoughts are kept in order. And then it comes to the will. My will submits to it. My affections are likewise kept in order, that it goes through the whole soul. It is the place David is in Psalm 42 where he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Burroughs gives a profound example of what contentment due to external things looks like. He is really driving at the fact that we can all become content for a time in some external thing. This is similar to what Horton went after in the idea of the contractual thinking, um, that if my wife fulfills her portion of the deal, I can find some sense of contentment in that my desires are being met, so I am content. Burroughs says to be content as a result of some external thing is like a warming is like warming a man's clothes by a fire. But to be content through an inward disposition of the soul is like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the natural heat of his body. A man who is healthy in body puts on his clothes, and perhaps at first on a cold morning they feel cold. But after he has had them on a little while, they are warm. This came from a natural heat of his body, not from an external fire. But a sickly man, whose natural heat has deteriorated, cannot get warm except from the external fire, and soon will be cold again. Burroughs goes on to flesh out the idea that we cannot truly be fit for any service of God if we have a discontent disposition. And just as 
as contented heart is very active and busy in the work of God, so he is very active in glorifying God's name in the affliction that comes upon him. He also paints an amazing picture of this idea of readily and freely I will be content. He says, suppose a child was born in prison and never went outside of it. He is content, but why? Because he never, he never knew anything better. His being content is not a free act. But for men and women who know better, who know that the condition they are in is an afflicted and sad condition, and, is, and still, by a sanctified judgment, can bring their hearts to contentment, this is freedom. Not only should I see that I should be content in this affliction, but I see there is good in it. Burroughs say, says that I find there is honey in this rock, and so I do not only say I must or will submit to God's hand. No, the hand of God is good. It is good that I am afflicted. I would imagine this is the place from which the writer of one of my favorite hymns was at the time of the time it was written. So to finish us up, I'm going to read um, It Is Well With My Soul. Again, be patient with me. It's, I'm, uh, it's hard to read these, keep track of them. But I think this is an amazing picture of contentment. Um, I just I absolutely love singing this song. So here it goes. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. O oh Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. So with that, anybody have any thoughts or questions? I don't know how well I'll do to field questions, but we'll go with that.
absolutely. And I think that if someone older than myself is saying that, I think that we are are only breeding that more and more to a younger generation of the I, you don't see thankfulness at all. I mean, I hope that as we raise our kids up in in the Lord that 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 won't be said of them that they will that that they won't look the same as as the rest of the world in their um, lack of thankfulness to their heavenly Father to those people around them. That's I think that's that is huge. Um, that's why I think that's absolutely um, necessary that we um, that we thank God in all circumstances, and we make a habit of that. That it's not just when things are going well that we are thankful, because that's not what true contentment is. We'd say that we may be content in our circumstances, but that ultimately we're not we're not truly content if that's the only time we're we're content. So Absolutely. Even the tough things. Can you say something, Blake? No. <laughs> uh, I would say, I don't know, my wife may say something different, but I would say I'm, I'm more content than not content in my circumstances. And that's probably been the case for a long time, not like a, becoming a believer in that being the case. I mean, just kind of more bent that direction. Now, not always and not in everything, and definitely things that I fall short in significantly, but... Burroughs kind of goes after that a little bit. I wish I could remember exactly what he said, and if it wouldn't take too long, I'd try to find it. But um, he kind of goes after that idea that that's not true contentment either, that that's, that's a contentment in yourself, that that's not, that doesn't come from God. That's not the working of the Holy Spirit to make you content. That is you feeling content, and still, it's still in a worldly sense. It's not, it has nothing to do with the sovereignty of God. And so I think that it was helpful that he kind of, for me, he kind of went that direction too because I, I felt like Horton didn't go there, uh, maybe for good reason, but um, I, I did like that he did in uh, Burroughs' book. Letha?
Absolutely. That's, an, that's a really good point. Um, Blake and I kind of talked about it a little bit, um, but this, this idea that we, we get so caught up in our circumstances, whether it be work and a job that I dislike, that I'm, I'm constantly searching for whatever the next thing is, and I lose sight of the fact that I can be ministering to the people around me just by living this, living this out in my life, this, this contentment. That if, if I know that this is the place that God has me for the moment, um, then I'm not constantly looking for what's the next best thing. I, I work at Pantex. It seems like that's what everybody is after is, uh, oh, well, there's another job opening. I'm going to go. I'm going to move groups. I'm going to go. This one's, this one's going to make a little bit more money. I'll be happier over there if I make a little bit more money or the boss over there is better. I'm going to. I'm going to go over there because that will make me a little happier over there instead of being content in the place that God has called you to be and to be faithful, a faithful witness to, um, to him through contentment. I think that's an amazing way to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, 
That's a good point. Hey, just real quickly before we end, uh, I just thought of a thing that came out of our Wednesday night study of the Apostles' Creed and the the, the Holy Spirit kind of going at what Rob was talking about, that um, as soon as we feel like we're in a better place or, or, or we've grown in this certain way, then, then the Holy Spirit's walking us around the house and he, he opens up a door or he goes to the door and we're like, that door wasn't, I've never seen that door before. And so, so he's like, let's, let's open this door. And he's like, I don't, I don't want to open that door. So just leave that door shut. But it's, it's very much that, that idea that he's, as soon as we think that we are there, even in contentment, that he's going to, he's going to, he's going to open up that place that we don't want to see that we're not content in. So, um, with that, Marty, did you have something before you? Sorry. Um, thank you, guys. <laughs>